This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. And we have a person that you folks are going to really be interested in. You know, here at Core Brain Journal, we've been terribly interested in taking care of veterans. We think they have done some service for the country. They've done a lot of service for the country. And it's amazing how often they get overlooked or they have meds thrown at them without knowing what's going on. And we have a number of people over at corebrainjournal.com forward slash vets. We've got more than 30 experts talking about what's going on with veterans over there. And we're going to add today's guest right up there to that list. Mr. Dwayne France, thank you so much for coming on board. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. So Dwayne is a guy who is a very interesting guy. I'm going to introduce him in just a minute. Let me say a quick word from the sponsor. And we're going to have a great conversation because Dwayne is out there on the street making sure things happen for veterans. So before we go there, let me just tell you that Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved, targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and, indeed, webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. You know, at Core Brain Journal, we do not like guesswork. We want the data. They also provide, and this is really important for medical providers out there who listen to these, a multiple training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use that really interesting laboratory data effectively in the office in any town. And they also have a special offer for our guests out there, and this is a unique offer that they're doing with us at CBJ, and that is they are providing every week some new free tests if you go to their site. So I have to go go to the site, register for a test, and they will have a drawing for like an organic acid test, GPL tox profile, GPL mycotoxin. There are a variety. Go over there and you'll be able to see what's going on. And this is a specific place to go register. The tests are worth minimum $219. Some of them are up to $400 in value, more than that. So it's at Great Plains laboratory.com forward slash CBJ, Core Brain Journal, Great Plains with an S, laboratory.com, all one word, forward slash CBJ. So with that, let's go ahead and talk to Dwayne about his life out there and the uh, in his service where he's working. I, would, I was hesitating. Yeah, Colorado, I did remember that correctly. So he's a clinical mental health counselor, currently serving as a director of veteran services at the Family Care Center which is a private mental health counseling agency specializing in the unique needs of military service members, veterans, and their families. He's also the executive director of the Colorado Veterans Health and Wellness Agency, a 501c3 nonprofit affiliated with the Family Care Center. He's a retired Army NCO non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran having served in deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. After his retirement, he served as the program director 
for the Colorado Veterans Resource Coalition, another 501c3 nonprofit that serves emergency and transitional housing to veterans participating in the programs at the local Department of Veterans Affairs Clinic. Since he transitioned to a full-time clinical mental health counseling, Mr. Francis provided mental health counseling services also to the Colorado 4th Judicial District Veteran Trauma Court. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in psychology at Excelsior College of Albany, New York, and the Master of Arts Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Adams State University and Alamosa, Colorado. He was selected as one of the five military scholars in the nation by the National Board of Certified Counselors Foundation, and in 2016 was awarded the 2016 NBCC, that National Board of Certified Counselors, Foundation Capacity Building Grant. So the guy is busy. Dwayne is passionate indeed about veterans' mental health, and he feels strongly, as we do at Core Brain Journal, that those who have served in the military can continue to provide value to the community long after that initial military service has ended. So, Dwayne, thank you so much for coming on board. We really appreciate it. Let's talk about how you actually evolved from combat duty, which is one place, into another, this other place of serving as a counselor and working and chasing down that particular service of a different kind. How did all that happen? It's a great question, Chuck, and it's one that's pretty intriguing. I was not a mental health professional when I was in the military. I didn't join. I I didn't even consider being a counselor for veterans. Uh, It was probably until after my tour in Iraq, I was starting to consider I had about six or seven years left in the military, and I was wondering what I was going to do. You know, when we grow up, what are we going to do? And it's sort of one of the things I really enjoyed about the military was taking care of soldiers and leadership and things like that. And so this is really sort of a natural extension of that. But I really got interested in psychology early on, and it just became a natural flow and kind of hit all the wickets. And here I am. Oh, that's interesting. And then, so then as you got into it, the transition, was it difficult? How did that work for you? So the transition for me, and I I always say that I was very blessed to have a good transition. I left the Army in a really great unit. I was in a support element for the 10th Special Forces Group here at uh, Fort Carson, and they really take care of you. And so I had a good lead time for my transition, but it was still hard sort of making your mind up and getting out of the mindset. It's really a different culture in the military. Mm -hmm. I often talk about how it's like I went to go live in England for 22 years. You know, we speak the same language, but it's a totally different culture. Mm -hmm. And now I have to get out and and learn how to integrate into a different culture, the post-military culture. I think the biggest challenge for me was, uh, as you said, all of those hats that I seem to wear. I, I seem to keep myself a lot more busy. My wife said after retirement, she thought she'd see more of me, not less of me. <laughs> but that's the big thing is I, I found that, that you know all veterans have a lot of space in their lives after they get out of the military. And we can either choose what to fill that space with or it's going to be filled for us. You know, Unfortunately, some veterans choose to fill it with things that aren't beneficial. And I think there were different times uh, in my post-military career that I tried to fill it with a lot of stuff. Well, you know, one of the things I think is that transition would be such challenging transition because the realities are so disparate. I mean, they're different. I mean, basically, you're, you're out there making sure you don't get blown up. And then you're talking to some, somebody about their, their relationship with themselves. You go from really just making sure you don't get killed to how you can work with a person on a deeper level with who they are as a human being. 
And yes, it, you know, you'd think that, but uh, as a platoon sergeant, then even as a first sergeant later on, trying to help soldiers become better versions of themselves, uh, help them understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. I've got a colleague of mine, he was a chaplain when I was in Afghanistan, and we reconnected some years after. And I told him now I'm a clinical mental health counselor. He said, well, that makes sense. You know, he's like, I could see that in you even then. There's nothing more existential than combat. So I really do think in in the army, we have this phrase, you know, uh, accomplishment of the mission and the welfare of the soldiers. Well, now my mission is the welfare of the veterans. And so really it's it's sort of an, an easy extension. It's just I have the lived experience and now I've got the clinical training to back it up. Interesting perspective. So it wasn't all black and white like I was thinking it was because you were over there because leadership for you was a meaningful activity over there. So you transitioned over because you were already a natural going in that direction over there. It's interesting. So then what are some of the things that you actually have experienced that surprised you upon getting back over here and getting into a practice over here that you really didn't anticipate that were just like, oops, in your face, things that, oh my gosh, this is something else here. Do you have any experiences that really were transformative in that regard? Yeah, actually. And and you mentioned it in 2016, I was awarded a grant uh, from the NBCC Foundation that allowed me to be able to provide counseling for veterans without the veterans having to pay. There's so many barriers to veterans accessing mental health. They don't have the funds, they don't have insurance, challenges with the VA. So at that time I was working with the local veterans court and as soon as a veteran pled guilty to a crime, then the coffers were opened up and somebody would pay me to see him. So I got the grant thinking that, well, we can get ahead of this. And it was sort of the new guy naivete, I guess. But I figured as soon as I put a shingle out and then people start beating feet to my door because free therapy, who doesn't want that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the very beginning, the first three or four months, I was sitting there, I'm like, what are we doing? Because, and so really it was, I knew about the stigma against seeking mental health counseling, but I wasn't prepared to think that it's not the resources. We don't have to reduce the barrier. We have to change the way we veterans or the community think about veteran mental health. Mental health in general, of course, but definitely in the the community that I work in or the culture that I work in, we have to change the way that we think about it and talk about it. So that's where a lot of my focus has shifted from providing services. I still do that, but now it's a lot more trying to get out and help veterans understand how mental health can help. And that's yet another dichotomy as you talk about it, because that's just the person dealing with the outside world and dealing with the inside world. And so many people think it's not the manly thing to deal with the inside world, you know, because that would imply that you have some vulnerability that you would want to look inward. And one of the things about being a warrior dude is not having vulnerability. Somewhere in there, it presents a dichotomy because the denial has to be out there to be able to get the job done. Right, absolutely. And there's things that the military trained me, trained veterans to do that was very beneficial in that time and in that environment. There's certain emotions that in combat, they're very necessary. Anger, mm-hmm. a healthy dose of fear can keep you alive, right? Hypervigilance, which is obviously, as many people know, one of the key aspects of post-traumatic stress disorder, that was beneficial when we were deployed to combat. Right, right. Now, when we came back, that's no longer beneficial because we're in a different environment. And the same thing happens in the civilian world. In my, you know, my non-deployed life, the idea of cherishment and love and a sense of safety, those are beneficial here, but they're dangerous there. 
Yeah. And so if we don't take that shift, if we don't make that shift and say, okay, emotions in that environment were good and it was, it was supportive and beneficial, and now we can use these here. A lot of people don't make that shift or even realize that it's necessary. Very interesting elaboration. Now, when you actually do this, let me ask you this. Let's break down a little bit for our listeners what you personally actually do at your center. I'm sure there's a diversity, but let's break it down a little bit. It's funny because my experience with anybody, veterans, anybody, there are multiple levels of service that one could provide. We could do group things. We could do individual counseling, pharmacologic intervention, uh, the variety of neurofeedback. So what kind of things do you guys provide there and what could veterans who come to your place expect uh, our options? So uh, the easy answer is yes. <laughs> which is all of those. We are a large private outpatient uh, clinic, but the owner of the clinic, he and his wife uh, purchased it, but he's the former chief of behavioral health here at Fort Carson. So we're veterans. We understand veterans and, and military service members. So he is a board certified psychiatrist. So we have five med management providers on staff that is oh, able cool, to do psychological cool, yeah. interventions. We do have a psychologist and we have a wide range of master's levels clinicians, um, LCSWs, LMFTs, and LPCs. So we can all get play well in the sandbox together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we have uh, child therapists because we, we don't just serve veterans. We serve military families out here at Fort Carson, um, Peterson Air Force Base. There's a large contingent of, of active duty in our town. So we do a lot of family members. And so we have uh, three or four, I think, play therapists. We do have groups. We do uh, very specifically focus on uh, dialectical behavior therapy. I've actually found that that's worked very well as sort of a, a next stage anger management program for veterans, really understanding how to mindfulness and control emotions. And then, of course, individual therapy. That's the outpatient thing. And then we have, I personally, I did a, a neurofeedback session this morning. So I'm certified in low energy neurofeedback systems. So we do neurofeedback, AccuDetox, EMDR. So we do have a wide range of offerings for, for veterans and family members. That's great. You guys are very diverse. That's why, that's why you said yes, because you got the whole thing covered. Rather than save it to offline, I'm going to tell you this online. I don't know if you're familiar with Kevin Kipp, Dr. Kevin Kipp, with ART, Accelerated Response Therapy. You want to get to know him because you have a diversity, and we interviewed him. I don't have the number right here in front of me, but he and uh, Kelly Breeding is his operations person. We have two different ART interviews. They are on the VETS page. Uh, if you go to corebrainjournal.com forward slash VETS, they're down at the bottom because they're relatively recent. But Kelly will tell you where you can get training on arts. And you want to know about that because they can turn a person around like a couple visits. And it's a mixture of what you were just talking about. EMDR. And I'm sure they're fine with neurofeedback. But the issue is they use an EMDR plus a, a specific technique, which I won't bother you with right now, but it does pick it up really quickly. I think the you guys would like that, and uh, if I had a whole other life, I would I would definitely uh, learn how to do that myself. Just a couple quick things for our listeners. You said things that you and I as counselors understand. Let's talk a little bit about that dialectic behavioral therapy a little bit, if you don't mind, and then talk about sure. EMDR real quickly, just so people... No, because it's kind of spooky. What are these acronyms for, you know, and what do they mean? What, why would you do something like that? 
in number one, I guess with veterans, we're, we speak acronym fluently. So we're kind of comfortable yeah, right. with, uh, with acronym. So uh, dialectical behavior therapy is an intervention. It was developed by Marsha Linehan. And it was originally developed for uh, borderline personality disorders, significant and transigent personality disorders. But it's found to have been worked with a lot of different things. I don't use a, a full adherent DBT with the veterans I work with. Instead, we've adapted some of Linehan's stuff. But basically, there's four different areas. There's core mindfulness. We teach core mindfulness techniques and understanding how mindfulness works. We have uh, interpersonal effectiveness, learning how to, to conduct ourselves in our relationships appropriately. There's uh, distress tolerance, learning how to tolerate the distress that some of these extreme emotions can bring out of us. And then finally, emotion regulation. And so there's different stages and there's different uh, interventions in each of these stages. But uh, basically, when I start working with veterans with this, they're like, wait a minute, you think there's a step-by-step method where I can actually change the way that I think and be aware of stuff? And veterans are great at step-by-step methods. I've had veterans go through these groups and they're like, why don't they teach this stuff in basic training, right? You know, where was this, where's this stuff been all my life? And so a lot of it speaks very well to veterans and what they understand and how they think. So I found it to be a, a great intervention, especially in a group setting. And then the EMDR is more individual. Now, EMDRs, where you're actually dealing with a very specific incident with a specific person, or how? what's your thought about that? Right. So EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And this is coming out of what we now know as the brain, right? Core brain journal, that, that it is mental health is as much neurological as it is psychological. And it's so intertwined. And EMDR helps sort of reprocess and reset some of the neurons and the thought patterns in the brain. So it's, it's done in a number of different ways. Uh, there's paddles, there's tapping, and there's some different things like that. EMDR is definitely a technique, and it's an evidence-based practice. It's one of the highest evidence-based practices for post-traumatic stress disorder. If the veteran is dealing with a trauma exclusively, along with prolonged exposure and cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy, But all of those work very, very well when it comes to addressing trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. So what would you say then, Dwayne? That's great. I mean, that's a great summary. I mean, honestly, anybody listening to this, you think about it, look, there's so many options and you get get with a guy like Dwayne and you really sit down and think about what the options are and you get an experienced guy who's been there and done that and they can come over and talk to you about the varieties of opportunities. Plus you have the depth of the medical you got in. The thing I think is really good about that is the medical people who are working with you are really tight with the whole veteran experience as opposed to we're just going to come in, give them a DSM-5 label and throw some stuff at them and hope they get better across our fingers. You know, we're really not for the current standard of guesswork that's out there. And you guys are obviously, we're on the same path with that. You know, absolutely. Our providers, um, if someone is referred to them for med management, they say, okay, We'll be able to calm the waters here, but you need to learn how to navigate the lake on your own. So they'll connect with a therapist. Same thing if if somebody comes in. So this is sort of a no wrong door when it comes to the mental health aspect. If a a veteran or their spouse comes in to see a therapist and we say, okay, there's a lot of different things going on. Let's connect you with our med management provider. See if we can't maybe manage some of these things because maybe it is biological, right? You know, Mm -hmm. there's no amount of therapy that is going to touch true bipolar disorder. That's a biological, right? Or, or schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So we have that ability to be responsive. And then, and, and there was another thing in my boss, will we also do transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
at our agency as well. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've seen TMS do some really great things when it comes to depression. It is FDA approved for depression specifically, but we have seen some great things, uh, individuals that have been treatment resistant for depression on three or four or five different medications have really had a turnaround after a course of TMS. Yeah, that's great. You guys have a very diverse situation. That's great. You really, you're doing the comprehensive care. It's fantastic. So let's talk about your books. You got a book. And I was really trying to sort this out because it looks like there are two books. The way it was written, I couldn't tell. So you have a book out, Headspace and Timing, Veteran Mental Health from a Combat Veteran's Perspective. That's Kindle. Yes. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then Combat, uh, the other one I didn't quite get is Being a Combat Vet Doesn't Mean Crazy, Veteran Mental Health and Post-Military Life. Is that a book or is that an article? What is that? No. So the second one, uh, that's our paperback book. So yeah, that's uh, Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy, right? You know, because I always had a first sergeant to say, soldier don't mean dumb and vet don't mean crazy, right? And and that's just sort of the way, I mean, and it's that the title has really resonated with a lot of veterans. It's it's sort of irreverent and kind of catches your eye. But yeah, so both of those, uh, first the Kindle book came out, that was a collection of, of blog posts that I had written in 2016 when I first started writing. And then the second one is uh, a collection of writings with some additional content that was actually released in paperback. And it's got a pretty good response. Essentially, the the idea is that uh, I want to be able to talk to veterans, help them understand, kind of lift the veil of what mental health is, right? They always think it's some guy on a couch where you're talking about your mother, right? You know, (laughs) and so... I want to help veterans understand that that mental health is critical for your post-military life. I've had family members pick up the book, the Combat Vet book, who said that it's helped them even start a conversation with their veteran, that they've not been able to to hear that veteran's story. But through the book, that's been a way to kind of support that. And then other mental health professionals that are interested in working with veterans, I've had some mental health professionals reach out to me and say that they're giving them to their students to their interns to help them understand more about veteran mental health and how to interact with veterans because it really is a different culture and we have to be culturally competent with veterans just like we have to be culturally competent in any type of care we do. So well said. Excellent. Well said. I mean, you know, it's so true. It doesn't matter. You can be a kid. It can be a gender specific, whatever. You, you have to have a sense of the environment and where that person really lives to actually talk to them effectively and have a respect for that experience that they've been living in. Absolutely. So when we come back, we're going to take a little break here. And what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you this question when we get back, because I think one of the things we like to highlight here is your own personal transformation, things that changed you, that were edifying to you as you went along life's way. You're obviously a very smart guy. You've had, you've been learning along, but we would like to ask you the following question when we get back. And that is, since you have been back, And since you've been working on the road of life out here, take a moment, if you will, when we get back to tell us some transformative experiences where you hit a roadblock that really made you rethink and then grow from what you were doing when you got back in the experience of trying to be a veteran provider as you are. So we'll, folks, we will be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications, 
and our brief hospitalizations arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj well here we are folks back again with Dwayne france and i can tell you right now i can see Dwayne right here in my screen and i'm glad he's out there in colorado because i don't want to get him irritated with me you know what i'm saying that was my former life chuck i don't, I don't do <laughs> so you know i'm putting you on the spot a little bit but i think it's important because this is what we all do as human beings we learn from some things that didn't turn out the way we thought, and we sort of re, redefine ourselves. Did anything come to mind while, while we were uh, taking a break there that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, actually, uh, something did. And, and this is something that maybe uh, as I was still in my master's program and I was starting to get it, I was starting to get uh, transitioning out of the Army. Uh, see, when we're in the military, it's really sort of a closed-loop system, and we re- don't really think about what happens off-post, right? You know, we don't think about this idea of after the military. We know that there's going to be a time we're not going to be in the military. But as I started my my retirement process, I knew that I was going to start studying to be a counselor, but I was already working, as as you had mentioned, as a program director for a homeless program, and I started noticing that veterans that I knew, soldiers that served with me, were also residents of these homeless programs. And it was mind-blowing to me. Oh, and it was gosh. probably three or four times. But the one time that really came to my mind was um, I started, again, throwing those things up and finding things to do. I started volunteering as a mentor for my local veterans court. And you mentioned the 4th Judicial Veterans Trauma Court. One of the key factors of the veterans courts are that they have veteran mentors, individuals who, who have served in the military. They're partner with these veterans who have gotten crosswise with the law and they're going through treatment. The first time I walked in the courtroom, a mentor of mine, old SAR major, invited me. I walked in the courtroom and I looked over to the side and there, sitting in an orange jumpsuit and shackles, was a, a young man that I had been deployed with in Iraq. If there were a blinking red line from him ending up in in shackles and incarcerated in the dock to the incident that occurred in Iraq, I was the one that was there that brought him off the fob when he saw his platoon sergeant get shot. Hmm. And for me, it was like cold water slap in the face saying that, that we know theoretically that our experiences in the military are going to impact us, but we don't understand how they're going to impact us and how they're going to impact us in the long run. So seeing that young man really brought it to my attention. And this time it was probably eight years after that incident when he and I were in Iraq together. And that even more solidified my passion and my dedication to 
trying to at least help veterans understand we're not going to undo what happened, but we can get to a different version of better if we're struggling in our post-military lives. That would be a tough one. It really would. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is the level of intimacy that people Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. when they're in that reality together. You know, when you lose somebody that you're that close with now, you might not in your regular life be that close with a person. Of course, if someone that you are friendly with passes, you're going to miss them. It's, it's going to be bad. But when you're out there in life or death and somebody is, goes suddenly right there and the intimacy is going to be, I would think, far. I mean, it hasn't happened to me, but I can just the way you're telling it, I can imagine that it would be much more difficult to manage. Well, and this is one of the things that makes veteran mental health different from those who may not have served, right? You know, everybody thinks combat veteran PTSD, right? PTSD, like it's one-to-one. And, and that's not exactly true. We know that the prevalence rates of PTSD are not that high as all combat veterans get it. And then, of course, traumatic brain injury. But there's some other factors that go along with leaving the military. So a lack of purpose and meaning, that existential stuff we were talking about, you know, that's Frankel and Yalam and, and Rollo May, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's not PTSD. That's something totally different that we have to understand that a veteran who, who served in the Helmand province in Afghanistan and had, was responsible for dozens of lives and hundreds of million dollars of equipment, and you come back and you're going to hand them a, a broom and a dustpan and tell them to sweep up the sawdust, their local sawmill, that's an adjustment, right? You know, that's something that they need to find. We, I personally, have found something that fills that need for satisfaction and meaning. The other thing that you mentioned is that loss, that traumatic loss. And so the concept of moral injury, as moral injury is, is emerging, it's separate from post-traumatic stress disorder. So that survivor's guilt, all of that is encompassed in moral injury. Also, we need to learn how to meet our needs after the military. 22 years, I never did one interview. I had one tie. That was my dress uniform tie. I never knew how to operate in a professional business environment. I didn't know my resumes. And so there's all of these different things. It's a deeper subject rather than just post-traumatic stress disorder. There's so much more that is complicates the veteran mental health landscape that if providers are going to work with veterans, they really need to understand the whole depth of it and not just think if they're going to talk about trauma. You know, Dwayne, that's one of the reasons I really like doing these interviews with individuals like yourself. And it's, just, it's great for me because you just introduced a term, which I really haven't heard before. And I'm sure if I haven't heard it, there are other people that haven't heard it. And you said a little bit about it, but if you could tease it apart. Just a little more for our audience, because I think it's absolutely germane to this conversation, and that is the moral injury. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, you know, I really, that's a new phrase, and I want to try and get my arms around that, if you don't mind, teasing that apart a little more so we get what you're talking about there. Sure. So, uh, moral injury is, well, let me back it up this way. PTSD, it's very, very basic. It's an injury of the behavior, right? You know, some it's Pavlovian almost. Loud noise goes off, I hit the ground, the full moon comes out, the, the hair on the back of my neck, right? And it is definitely much, much more than that, but in the basic injury of the behavior. Traumatic brain injury is an injury, a physical injury to the brain, right? Bruise the brain, bruise my elbow. Mm-hmm. Moral injury is an injury of the soul. It's an injury of what I believe to be as right and wrong with the world. So if we think about, obviously, even going back as far as, as Vietnam and the My Lai massacre or what happened in early um, Iraq with Abu Ghraib and the events that happened during the prison there. And this even goes back to, you know, Zimbardo and the Stanford prison experiment where good people put in situations, their situational and systematic influences 
that will cause good people to do bad things. So moral injury is sort of a, a knocking off kilter what I believe to be right and appropriate and good in the world. And so it happens in those large scale things, but it also happens in the small scale. There's no such thing as a stop sign in Afghanistan. There's no speed lights in Iraq. There's no speed limits. There's no one way street is whichever way that I'm going. And so if I'm 18 years old and I have that kind of uh, freedom. Now I have to come back to a country of rules and laws and, and I have to learn how to reintegrate myself when I actually well, it was pretty cool that I could, not cool, but I was able to point a weapon at someone and get them to do what I want them to do. And now I have to stand in line behind a nice little lady writing a check, right? And so there's a lot of stress when it comes to changing the way that we think and feel, but that has more to do with belief and not all have to do with post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, and the dichotomy that you were drawing so well there, I was very well said. I really appreciate your elaborating on that. It was helpful for me and I'm sure it was helpful for a number of people who who are listening. And I, I think one of the things that was hitting me as you were talking about is the dramatic change between activity and passivity. Because what you're doing when you're fighting, you're in an active MO. That's the way you're handling your life actively with your colleagues. And you're doing something every second, either self-protective or aggressive. It doesn't matter how, how you do it. It's activity. And the two quick ones that you mentioned were, you know, standing in line behind a little old lady and pushing a broom. I mean, you go from a very intense activity to a quasi humiliating, depending on what your perspective is, passivity that you can't do anything about. That a person who's used to being active could get irritated over nothing because they're just not used to having that passivity forced on them by relatively inconsequential, not life or death situations. In a way, it's humiliating, even though. It's a little lady, but you go ahead. You were going to say something. Yes, these scenarios, and I have heard people say that same thing is, is it is humiliating. You know, this, uh, I was in charge of a squad of soldiers and now you want me to do this. And so there is a little bit of that. But yes, that idea of I'm a man or a woman of action, right? You know, and, and I really, I'm used to getting things done. I'm used to timelines. I'm used to accomplishing the mission. And things just don't work that way outside the military, right? And we do have to learn to be more patient. And that goes back to that idea that I, I was talking about. We learn how to meet our needs in different ways. When I was in the military, you know, we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When I was in the military, I never had to worry about where my food came from or where I slept because the military provided that for me. Or even the higher needs, right? Those social needs. The, it, you said it before, the military packaged your group and handed it to you. Whether you liked them or not, they were yours. And so all of our needs were met in a certain way on Maslow's hierarchy when we were in the military. Now we have to learn how to meet those needs in a different way once we're out of the military. We need to establish our own network. We need to figure out how to get our own job and, and do these different things. And it's not that veterans aren't capable of standing in line behind the nice lady in the checkout counter. No, no. It's just they don't know that they need to. They don't have that skill set. And that's part of the development. Yeah, well, the big difference there, and you just said it again, I mean, you said it so well, but I mean, the, the issue in terms of the activity and passivity is also related to structure, direction, and the self. Who is the self? Is the self self-determined? Are they group-determined? What happens when you're out there is you're frequently looking very strongly at a team and your whole identity becomes a team identity. It isn't an individual identity, and that's what basic training is all about, is you got to really think beyond the self-identity. When you come back out, who are you? What do you like? What do you not like? 
What are you okay with? What are you not okay with? And that is peeling away some serious layers. Right. And then, and you're back in that area of, of uh, Frankel and Yalam and, and Rollo May. That's pure existential stuff. And people will go their entire lives, even if they haven't served in the military, trying to say, what is my purpose and what is my meaning? But veterans sort of in service members really have that kind of package to them. We have a set of code and values and things like that. And then if people do identify so much with who they are, they're a soldier, they're airman, marine, sailor, coast guardsman. If that is their identity, I've heard veterans say that I'm no longer allowed to be who I was. The army that I love so much tells me that I can't be me anymore. I mean, and that's huge existential shift. And yeah. that's not post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, yeah. so if we talk about EMDR is great if I suffered trauma, but EMDR doesn't do anything if I'm trying to figure out who I am in my life. Yeah, I can't remember the Jacko Wilnick's quote on that. I've got a video of him talking about this very point on the Vets page because I think Jocko says these things so well. And, he, you know, he really talks about this whole thing of, I had to leave the war behind me. I mean, it was that whole was leaving an identity that was mine and refinding himself when he came back and him very, very clearly and very articulately identifying with that different reality, which is less structure, self, where are you going and really making a decision about who you are as a person in so many different ways. Oh, absolutely. And you've talked a couple times about uh, dichotomies, Chuck, and here's a big one that a veteran's worst deployment when they were in the military, their worst combat was probably both simultaneously their best of times as well as their worst of times. That it was something that they hated it and it was war and we hate war, but we kind of enjoyed the camaraderie and the executing the mission and, and the skills and things that we had. I had a, a colleague ask me one time, you know, the, these uh, icebreaker questions, if you could close your eyes and go anywhere in the world where you'd want to go, and I closed my eyes and realized that no consequences, nothing whatsoever, I'd go back to Afghanistan mm -hmm. in a heartbeat. The choice of Paris and all the beaches and every wonderful thing in it, I would go back to Afghanistan in a heartbeat. And that was my most challenging, my most kinetic. That was to the point where we lost the most people. And it was the worst. It was the most terrible time in my life. But it was also, discounting my, my family and friends, but it was also the best time in my life. So these are the kind of things that a lot of veterans, and, and like you said, Jocko says the same thing. I wish I could go back. I wish that I was there and I know that I can't. And how do I resolve that? And these are all different things that mental health professionals can and should help veterans get involved with. Well, I, I think what a guy like you does, which is, first of all, you're a guy and you've been there. You can very quickly identify with it. But I think it's really taking it away from just the veteran. And you said this a couple of times. All of us as human beings have the choice of either deciding who we are or not deciding who we are, you know, and really taking that deeper trip, getting on the path of self-discovery in the evolution of the development of the self in, in different venues and different realities, or we stay put and stay on the farm and just don't go. And uh, I think people that go have a sense of going is productive. And then when you don't go, you have to redefine what going is all about and where you're going to go in that different contexts. I wind up saying the same thing. I think you said it very, very well, and I really appreciate the uh, points that you're raising. So we got to wind up. It's been a great conversation. Uh, let's talk about, we're going to have the links for your books and so on in the show notes, but let's just talk about, and you, have you do videos as well. Look at you. I just noticed that at veteranmentalhealth.com. 
We do. We, I mean, we're, we're trying, and it's all about spreading the word. It's all about trying to get people to understand that there's nothing wrong and everything right with taking care of your mindset once you leave the military. You know, we did it to our equipment when we were in, but somehow we, we forget that we need to do that whenever we get out. And a lot of veterans don't perceive that they have a need. So the idea behind the videos and, and social media and the podcasts and the blogs and the books is just to try to get it out there and say, hey, veterans, there's nothing wrong with sitting down and talking to somebody because it could actually benefit you. So that's the idea behind the, the blog. I post a new blog every week, one blog every week, one podcast every week. And it's really become something that veterans can understand. I've even had veterans say that I took it into my counselor, my therapist, and said, hey, this is what I was talking about last week. Can we dig deeper into this? And so it's really been very beneficial. Very, very cool, my man. Excellent job. Really appreciate it. So let's just say it. So that's the videos are at veteranmentalhealth.com. You can subscribe to Headspace Timing. Uh, let me get that squared away. It's bit.ly, Headspace Timing, subscribe. My, yeah, or, or they can just go. So the, everything is there at veteranmentalhealth.com. Oh, that's and, where to go. Okay. Yeah, and there's uh, so all the blogs, the books, the podcasts, the subscribe. Everything's there at veteranmentalhealth.com. Fantastic. I mean, that's, I mean, what a good URL to own. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's you putting it down. It's very fantastic. Yes, unfortunately. And I was both elated and sort of depressed that it, it took somebody this long to pick up that URL, right? So veteran mental health isn't very widely discussed. This is not so, a good thing. Yeah, right? yeah, so this guy coming along and having that available, but I think we're trying to do it well. We're trying to do the URL justice. Well, Dwayne France, you guys really have a very comprehensive view. We at Core Brain Journal strongly support what you're doing. We're going to have you over on the VEST page. And I can't tell you how much we've really appreciated you coming on. I think you're doing a great job out there. This is, uh, I hope everybody that's had any experiences like service of any kind can get in and listen to this and really take some heart. There, there's some different things they can do rather than live in a stuck quagmire of, I don't understand what the meaning of all this is. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. And, and you mentioned service of any kind. We are seeing that there is a big parallel between veteran mental health and first responder mental health. If someone who is a retired police officer, retired fire department, listen to this, they can probably hear a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So you're right, service of any kind, people can benefit. So I really appreciate you having me on, Chuck. Thank you very much. We'll do it again sometime. Let's talk. You have a Looking good one. Looking forward to it. All right. You we'll too. see you, buddy. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.